If you will please take your Bibles again, uh, this time to the book of uh, Luke. We read uh, the text in our scripture reading this morning, so I will not read it now. But I want you to notice here that chapter 7 begins with a time note. But when he finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, notice in verse, in verse number 1. It, here we have a reference to the Sermon on the Mount, which closed chapter 6, verses 17 to 49. So the importance of this time reference then is that it relates here to what he is going to begin to tell us now in this next chapter here with respect to his purpose for the gospel, his purpose in writing his gospel, which is to present the kingdom of God entering into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who fulfills all the kingdom promises and prophecies in the Old Testament, not the nation of Israel. It's Jesus. Very simple thing. The Old Testament introduced the kingdom but demonstrates the failure of the nation of Israel to accurately represent that kingdom. The Jews, sadly, were under the impression that their physical descent from Abraham was sufficient to assure their status in the kingdom as citizens. That false impression gave them leave to pursue wealth and status believing that to be a mark of divine favor. It was really idolatry that made prosperity their God. Don't let prosperity be your God. In response to his teaching in the towns and the villages, in chapter 13 of Luke, we read here that, that someone, just says someone, asked Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now think about that. He's teaching, and here's somebody who's beginning to catch on. And he's saying, I don't think he thinks that this whole nation is going to go gloriously into the kingdom of God. So he asked the question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? That, that's a uh, Luke 13, verse 23. This question was actually that someone realized what Jesus taught was making it clear that he didn't believe that many Jews, Jewish people would per se be in the kingdom. Jesus' response was to urge the questioner to strive to enter through the narrow door. What did he mean by that? In other words, don't assume that you're in the kingdom because you have Abraham's DNA. And then he proceeded by telling them, With you there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Whoa. Verse 28. On the other hand, many Gentiles will come from the east and west and from the north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. 
the story of this centurion in our text this morning will be one of them. That's, that's what this is all about. The constituency of the kingdom was to shift from a Jewish context to chiefly a Gentile one. The pivot would be away from the Old Covenant assumption to New Covenant reality based on faith demonstrated in obedient perseverance. Now listen to that. The reality of the kingdom today is based upon faith demonstrated in obedient perseverance. The sermon that he had preached earlier there in chapter 6 addressed the necessity for such faith and obedience in the context of a proper application of God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, to one's life experience. The Pharisees believed that they truly represented the kingdom of God and thus they controlled who entered it. So consider here Jesus' conversation with the Pharisee Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus shocked him to the core by telling him that unless he experienced a new birth he would not even see the kingdom of God. The Pharisees, sitting in the seat of judgment over others' behavior with respect to the kingdom, were actually living hypocritical lives. And as Jesus said, the blind lead the blind, will they not both fall into the ditch? In chapter 6 and verse 39. Thus, Verse 1 of chapter 7 introduces the great faith of a Gentile God-fearer. Upon Jesus entering Capernaum again, Luke records his healing of this centurion's slave. So before considering the text, please note, there are two accounts of this. One is in Matthew and one is here in Luke. In Matthew chapter 8 and here in Luke chapter uh, seven, uh, 7. What's interesting here is that uh, both of them follow the ser uh, sermons. The, one follows the sermon on the, uh, on the mount in Matthew, and this one follows the sermon on the plain uh, there. So that has led many to argue that the sermon on the plain is really the sermon on the mount. These are two, there's just two different renderings of the same thing. Now, I believe them to be two separate occasions, but I'm not going to die on this hill. <laughs> so first of all, consider here the great contrast in character. In contrasting the hypocritical character of the Pharisees at the close of chapter 6, Luke now records the story of a high-ranking Gentile officer, a centurion, in the king's army. Three things in this story here support the observation of his being a Gentile. First of all, note his position. Although many believe him to be a Roman soldier, there's no evidence at all that Romans ever had troops in Capernaum. 
Thus, he must have served in Herod Antipas's army, composed of men of various nationalities. He's a centurion. A centurion commanded a hundred men, a century. A cohort was composed of six centuries, 600 men. A legion was made up of 10 cohorts, 6,000 men. So he is a uh, officer over a century, 100 men. And this story shows that he was a God-fearer, a proselyte of the gate, as it were. All centurions mentioned in the New Testament, appear to have been very honorable men. Polybius was an early Roman historian, and he supports the fact that centurions were very honorable men. They were chosen for, to that position because they were honorable. This one, however, rose above all the others because he loved the Jewish nation. He loved it. So much so that he was a generous benefactor and built for them a synagogue in Capernaum. And according to verse number 5, this no doubt explains why the elders of the synagogue were so very willing to go to Jesus with this centurion's request. That he was a Gentile is also deduced by the fact that when he heard Jesus was coming to his house, he sent friends to intercept him as he drew as Jesus drew near. And they said to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am a I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That's verse six. Although this strongly argues for his great humility, it also explains that he understood the law prevented Jews from entering the houses of Gentiles because it would, be, it would render them ceremonially unclean. But here's an interesting point to the story. Jesus was willing to do it. He was willing to do that very thing. He was ready to enter this Gentile's house. While the, when the elders came to Jesus to plead, which is a very strong term in the Greek, they did not just simply ask him. They begged him to go. Jesus instantly and eagerly went with them. Verse 5 is joined with, to verse 6 with the conjunctive and, which in the Greek intensifies the response, as does the verb itself. Jesus did not hesitate, but went immediately to go. This also shows that much of the Levitical system was on the verge of being removed. That Jesus did not consider it to be a problem of ceremonial uncleanness shows that it's, things are about to change. In fact, uh, Peter's experience in going to the house of the Gentile Cornelius in, in the book of Acts there, chapter 10, proves that fact as well. And I, sh I want to say here on the side that the fact that there was no attempt to bring the ailing servant to Jesus may indicate that it was on a, this was done on a Sabbath day. 
Then thirdly, note Jesus' response to his faith. This also proves he was a Gentile. Jesus said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. The phrase, not even in Israel, strongly implies that the centurion was a Gentile. And it's interesting, in the New Testament, there are only two instances where Jesus praises the faith as being great. Someone's faith as being great. Here, and in the case of the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, verses 22 and following. Although Jesus did find faith in Israel, he found great faith in two Gentiles. The Jewish elders' willingness to present the centurion's request shows their high opinion of the man. He was clearly devoted to, Jew to the Jewish faith, going so far as to build a synagogue. And so their testimony to Jesus was, he is worthy to have Jesus do this for him. Then verse 4, his life among them impressed them greatly. His benevolence was appreciated. But it was also imbalanced here with his great character. He's a kind man. But he did not use his wealth in an arrogant attempt to win favor among the Jews. He just wanted to be there to help them. This fact was also obvious in two things. First of all, take note of his great humility. Although he was a high-ranking officer in Herod's army and a generous benefactor to the Jews, which shows he was also somewhat wealthy, he deemed himself unworthy. Literally, in the Greek there, I am not sufficient. This humility is revealed in, in, two, in a twofold manner. First, he respected the law of God, particularly laws forbidding interaction with uncircumcised persons which forbade Jews from entering Gentile dwellings. So he did not see himself above this. He said, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. In verse 6. But his humility is not self-depreciation. Denying good or worth in us. This would dishonor God who graciously does work in us. Charles Hodge defined humility as an abiding sense of ill-desert and, and in the consciousness that what we have of good is due to the grace of God alone. And that's taken from Jerry Bridges' Transforming Grace. But it describes this centurion's approach to Jesus. No, then notice also that he regarded the, uh, the person of Jesus as superior to his. He sent his request to Jesus via the elders out of respect for Jesus because he knew that Jesus could do what he asked of him. Yet he was also careful to avoid any thought that he was being presumptuous. He did 
He did so by explaining his expectations in, uh, concerning obedience in military terms. As a commander, he could order those under him and expect full and immediate response in obedience to the orders that were given to them. But he, he was also, on the other hand, one under authority. So he was also required to obey. And this argument may seem difficult for you to understand, or for, but let me explain it like this. His argument is in logical terms, from the lesser to the greater. The centurion was actually acknowledging that Jesus was superior to him. If a man under authority instantly submits to a greater authority, then how much more will Jesus, who has all power and authority over all agencies under his command, be obeyed? So don't misunderstand this. He's not suggesting that his that his rank somehow made him somewhat equal to Jesus. Not at all. He viewed himself as a man set under authority. An inferior. And in this sense, he compared himself with the higher eminence of Jesus. In fact, he called him Lord. Kurios. Lord, do not trouble yourself. Verse 6. By calling him Lord, he recognized Jesus as divine, and thus he must be obeyed. As Jesus previously asked of the Jews in his sermon there in chapter 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I tell you? Verse 46. True humility is evidenced in submissive obedience to the Lordship of Jesus. Many who claim to be followers of Jesus are very hesitant to obey Him. This is a serious fault. And it may result in their facing the Lord on Judgment Day and hearing Him deny them entrance into the kingdom and, and eternal life. Paul made this very clear in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know... Or do you, excuse me, do you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of, the, of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. Romans chapter 6, verses 16 to 18. In Revelation, we read of those uh, who oppose the kingdom and they, that they will make war on the Lamb. But the Lamb will conquer them. They'll make war on the Lamb. Lambs conquer. That doesn't seem right. <laughs> They're going to make war on the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them. 
For why he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Think about that for a minute. He looks like a lamb. But he's really the Lord of lords and King of kings. That's how many people view Christ. He's nothing. He's weak. He's ineffective. He's just a little lamb running around. But no, he's really king of kings and lord of lords. So they make war on him. And he's victorious over them. You see that? And then John adds a very powerful truth. That those with him are called chosen, and faithful. Does that describe you? Have you been called of Jesus Christ? Are you chosen by Him from eternity past? And is it evidenced in your now being faithful to Him, to this Lamb? See, this describes the followers of Jesus as and faithful defines their obedient faith. So not only was this Gentile centurion a man of great humility, he is also a man of great faith. Having heard about Jesus, the centurion sent Jewish elders to ask Jesus to come and heal the slave. But somehow he got word that uh, Jesus said, I will come and heal him. And as so as Jesus went on his way, he was intercepted by the centurion's friends who delivered his argument. He was arguing him to stop an action already begun. His reason for this was that he was not worthy. So he was astonished that Jesus was actually coming to him. It may be that he thought something was wrong. How could Jesus enter this his unclean house? Did the elders urge him too much? Was Jesus under some misapprehension? He was overwhelmed by the fact that Jesus was coming to him when he did not presume even to go to Jesus. Verse 7. But he did believe that Jesus was able to heal the servant, here his slave, without even coming to him, being near him, or touching him. All Jesus needed to do was to speak a word, and his slave would be healed. And it was this that evoked from Jesus great amazement. Often we read of people's wonder at, the, at seeing the miracles of Jesus. But here we read of Jesus' admiration at, the servant, at, at this centurion's faith. Here was a Gentile with great faith. That above any faith he had witnessed in Israel. Compare that here with an incident in John chapter 4. Also at Capernaum, 
there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to, to him and to ask him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The, officer, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now, here was a man of little faith. How do we know this? Because of the mild rebuke of Jesus. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The man responded with greater faith, and thus Jesus let him go, assuring him that his son would live. Why, faith is a gift of God. And faith responds to the word of God. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. So then notice his urgent appeal. His urgent appeal was due to the condition of the slave who was at the point of death. Matthew adds that he was paralyzed and suffering greatly. Matthew 8, verse 6. But this slave was also highly valued by his master. Verse 2. Who was desperate to see this slave re uh, recovered. The centurion's great affection for him was very different from that of many who regard the usual relationship of slaves and owners being treated with indifference and as mere property. No, there was a bond here, a personal human bond between these two. Indeed, the centurion's request was given with desperate urgency, for he feared the loss of this valuable person. Interestingly, reading the two accounts, one in Matthew and one in Luke, Matthew does not even mention the elders or their intervention, but gives the story as if Jesus was addressing the centurion face to face. And on, although the centurion believed that Jesus could heal the slave by merely speaking a word, Luke does not tell, tell uh, Luke, excuse me, Luke does tell the reader that Jesus never spoke a word. He didn't even speak a word. The only response of Jesus was to marvel at the man's faith. So Jesus topped this man's request by mere volition, Jesus willed the healing without a touch and without a word. And this is also implied when those who were sent returned to find the servant completely well. Jesus simply willed the healing and rewarded the faith, Matthew informs us, and to the centurion, as represented by his friends, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So let me conclude. What is the significance of this story? As we noted in the introduction, 
Luke's purpose here in the story was to contrast this Gentile's faith with the unbelief of many in Israel. If faith is a gift of God, then obviously what Luke shows us is that the kingdom of God is going to shift from the old covenant people, Israel, to the new covenant people, a people composed of both Jew and Gentile, indeed a ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 5 and 9. So understand here that although the natural man will not believe, now listen to this carefully, it must not be misunderstood that people cannot believe. If that were the case, God could not and would not hold them responsible for unbelief. The issue is the will. Sinners will not believe. The gift of faith granted through the new birth breaks this stubborn will and enables the sinner to believe and trust the Lord. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 prove this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Matthew, however, adds information on this very purpose. After Jesus responded to this man's great faith, Jesus said, I tell you, truly I tell you, I'm, now I'm quoting from Matthew, Matthew 8, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Then he goes on to say, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the supposed sons of the kingdom, Israel, will be thrown into outer darkness. That place, there, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapter 8, verses 10 to 12. So true sons of the kingdom are those who, who by faith have entered the, the kingdom at the straight and narrow gate and struggled on the narrow way, deeming the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt and because they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Hebrews eleven sixteen and 26. Does this describe you? Are you one who just trusts believes and then you obey without question and persevere even when it's difficult even struggling when you don't understand why and here we have defined and illustrated in this sermon true believers are those who follow Jesus unquestioningly obediently and faithfully. They have surrendered all to the king of kings, submitting to this lion of the tribe of Judah, who actually appears to them and to the world as a defeated, butchered lamb. And here we see Jesus' humility. 
The world looks for a lion. But Jesus comes as a lamb. His victory looks like defeat. But his defeat is victory. True faith sees the slaughtered lamb and knows the triumph of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this story set forth in the Gospel of Luke. And we pray that the truth of that may settle upon our own hearts, revive our spirits, strengthen our resolve, cause us to persevere in, in, in our lives no matter what the struggle. For we know that the victory is assured. Jesus is seated at the right hand of majesty. And he's coming one day to receive us to himself. Oh, may our faith be that faith of the centurion who just believed that Jesus could say a word and it would be done. Lord, may we believe the same. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.